In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. The passage from today's reading is from the book of Daniel. It is the account of Susanna, who is uh, falsely accused by two corrupt elders. This text was from the deuterocanonical texts of the Old Testament. That means it was the second canon. It was a canon, a series of books of seven texts or books in the Old Testament that were uh, rejected by the Protestants. They were considered apocryphal. And also uh, the Jews. The Jews, Jewish canon took over a thousand years to be established and there was no there was no static canon for, for the Jews. It kept like being added here and there. And eventually they rejected that, but they also rejected the canticle of the three young men in the fiery furnace that was rejected, and other passages, a few others anyway. But this, this passage here of the story of Susanna, which is one of the longest readings in the liturgy, well, it was not present in the Hebrew text, but it was present in the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was later translated by St. Jerome, and he included it. Now, this story, which is a quite a, a dramatic account of you know, a, an obvious injustice against an innocent woman, the church uh, decided to include it in Lent now, in the fifth week of Lent, often because, well, it had been read for, for centuries for the catechumens that were preparing themselves uh, for baptism. And it was felt that an account of a woman, an innocent woman being persecuted by two lecherous men was a, was a good way to prepare the catechumens because it was a way of telling them, look, you guys are going to be persecuted as well. So take the example of the innocent Susanna. And uh, the very scene was quite widespread in Christian art. You can see it in the early sarcophaguses. You can see it in the catacombs. Uh, sometimes Susanna is represented in the form of a lamb. And the two elders, well, they're just like represented as wolves. So you've got a lamb there and it says, Susanna, this is Susanna. And on either side, you've got these wolves and these are the two elders. Right? And, uh, and so it was like it was a common, commonly recounted story for the early Christians. So what do we draw out of this account? Well, we draw out, of course, that Susanna was instantly in this garden and was being spied upon by these two elders who were just taken over by their own passion for her. And the reading uses a fascinating turn of phrase about the temptations of these two men. It says, they suppressed their consciences and would not allow their eyes to look to heaven. They suppressed their 
consciences. You know, to suppress one's own conscience is, well, it's a very, thing, very serious thing to do. It means your conscience is telling you, don't do that. This is bad. Do not do this. It's wrong. But you suppress that voice, the inner voice. Another translation says, they perverted their own mind. Like it's like taking your mind that is telling you something and you just like, forget it. I'm not listening to that. So that means not listening to that gentle call of the conscience, which is a form of perversion. Right? That's what perversion is. Your conscience is telling you this is wrong, or of course, such and such a thing is right, and you, you don't listen to it. We turn away and we create a kind of a, a rupture within ourselves. That's what these two elder, elders did. And naturally, their presence there was no accident. They just didn't just stumble upon her. And they knew full well that what they were doing was wrong. And they acted as these sheeming predators while Susanna, chaste Susanna, had, she had no idea that she was being observed, at least not in that way, she had no idea. And that she was unfairly accused, and I mean, she was sentenced to death, and was almost killed, until the figure of the prophet Daniel comes to save the day. And he puts them on trial, and he shows that they were lying the whole time. You could write a whole study about how this scene of the elders and Susanna was represented in art throughout the centuries. I mean, there are many, many representations of it. You could do, you could do a study, you could do a PhD on the story of Susanna in uh, art through the ages, or even just about Baroque art or something. It was very popular in Baroque art. And uh, some of these paintings focus on the drama of the moment, Sometimes Susanna looks quite oblivious. Other times she looks very ashamed. She looks very vulnerable. Other times she looks very innocent, like a victim. So it's as though there were, there were many layers, many ways in which to represent this drama. And uh, Pope John Paul II had spoken often about our conscience, the role of our conscience in our life. Veritatis Splendor is a famous encyclical that he wrote back, I believe it was 1993. And I remember there were being conferences about this, theologians discussing this. And I remember still, it had only just come out. It was only out like a couple of months or something. And everybody was talking about Veritatis Splendor, about the, about the moral teaching of the church in particular, about the, the nature of the human conscience that is able to discern the moral good. And... For some reason, I ended up in some, some ecclesiastical conference that was talking about Veritatis Splendor and the Splendor of Truth, and, and all these theologians were you know, giving their opinions. And uh, I remember one, uh, one priest came up, he was religious, and he was praising it, praising this beautiful encyclical, and he said, you know, I've already read this encyclical 26 times, <laughs> and each time I read it, I discover a new layer of meaning. Wow, 26 times. I hadn't even finished it once, you know. And 
and it, it struck me that you know you can really go quite deep into the meaning of conscience and Pope John Paul II had spoken about conscience in our life that it functions as a as a guide to highlight the objective norms of morality the way he explained it norms that we ourselves have not made up we don't make up the norms we haven't invented the norms of Christian morality. They've been there all along, all along. They've always been there. But it is our conscience that spells them out. The conscience is saying, okay, this is wrong, so apply your conscience here and now. Like, that's what the conscience does. It's got a principle like, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery or thou shalt not steal. Thou shall not kill. But the conscience says, okay, in this circumstance, what you're doing right now, that, that, that is, you know, that is, thou shall not kill. That is, thou shall not steal. So the conscience helps us in the here and now. And uh, it is assumed that those elders heard those promptings. They knew that it was wrong. Their conscience was telling, don't stay here, get out of here. This is, this is a sin to look upon this woman the way you are looking at her with that passion, do not do this. Or maybe you're free to do it, but it's wrong. But they ignored the gentle call of God. Sometimes the call of God can be very intense, very, let's say, very powerful. Other times it's just like a whisper. Just like a whisper. John Paul II had said that this is the voice of, he said, the voice of this law which speaks to a person's heart when necessary says, do this, avoid that. Do this. Help that person. Sometimes overcome your moodiness. Be nice to this person. Listen to her. Or in a moment of temptation, walk away. Go. Cardinal Newman in the 19th century said that conscience is a connecting principle between the creature and his creator. It's a, it's a beautiful image. It's a connecting principle between the creature, we're, we're the creature, and the creator himself. Moral and religious teachings come from God. They come from you, Lord. And they are binding on us. They are binding on our mind and our will. And we have to follow them even if we're not particularly uh, enthused by them all the time. It's not our own personal oracle that we can consult. It's not our personal oracle that we consult now and then. It's, it's really God's voice that we hear in the well-formed mind, you could say in the heart, and then we put it into practice through the will. That's what the conscience does. And that's why they say to have a good conscience means that we have to, we, we have, to have a good grasp and a clear application of the moral truths. That's what a good conscience is. We have a good grasp and then we apply it in specific circumstances. But what is primary is the truth the revelation of God. 
is a truth that is grasped and is applied by the practical mind. Some have compared the conscience to the GPS in your car. We all get around now with GPSs. You know, nobody can go anywhere unless we have the phone that tells us, turn here, go straight here for the next kilometer. Now turn right. You know. Turn here because you're going to avoid traffic. I don't know. And uh, we always say that we trust our GPS to bring us to our destination. But for us to have it bring us to our in, in destination, we have to obey it. And we see that when we don't obey it, when we go straight, when we're supposed to turn right, it starts, starts recalculating. It starts saying, okay, this guy, she didn't go the way I was, she was supposed to. So it recalculates and then says, okay, take the next, uh, next turn. Well, it has to recalculate when we ignore its instructions. But this does not only help us, let's say, to get to a friend's party or some place that we're meant to go, but also, you know, in our own daily life, when we're at home, so to speak. The conscience must be well-formed and must guide us. And we can help others to clear their consciences, form their consciences. You know, I've told you this before, no doubt, but I remember an example, reading about an example that touched me particularly a few years ago. It was on the day of the announcement of the resignation of Pope, Pope Benedict. And when he made it public in that consistory with the cardinals, we thought it was just another consistory, but he announced there that he was going to resign. But he had to give an explanation. And one of the lines he says is that, he said he had repeatedly searched his conscience. In other words, he went back to that secret place again and again in his prayer. He said, I have repeatedly searched my conscience in prayer, and I have come to the certitude that God was asking me, asking this of me. He was certain that God was asking him to resign, not just because he had the feelings or because he had some kind of fear. But because of his prayer life and his clear conscience, God, he said, was asking this of him at this time, in this situation. He wasn't asking of them, him of this before, a few years before or months before. He was asking him this now. He didn't have any regrets. He was often asked if he thought this was a mistake, and he kept saying, no, no, this is clear. This is what I have to do. It's, it's a clear guiding principle that his conscience was taking him. It was truly a momentous decision, obviously very historical. But for him, it was well-covered territory. He had been in contact with that voice of God many times before. It wasn't an agonizing decision because he was in tune with his conscience. He was in tune with the voice of God. He was used to obeying it. He was docile. It was like a compass that he often looked at to guide him, sometimes through dark moments. 
And it has always encouraged me to think that God can indeed guide us. He's not left us sort of in the open seas. He guides us with his inner light. In fact, even better, he attracts us to the good. He gives an attraction to the good. And it's encouraging to think it doesn't leave you in the dark without mooring, without anchor, without a sense of where you're going. Well, we ask, am I in contact with that divine voice of yours in my conscience? It means we have to form our conscience. It means we have to form it by consulting the opinion of others. Do I hear you reassure me in this in this uncertainty? We do that through prayer. We do that through time. We do that through discernment. We do that through reading the book of our life. The Master wants to speak. Like when Martha went to Mary, when Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, we saw this past Sunday. He goes, she goes to Mary, who is waiting in Bethany. And she says in that famous line, Magister adest advocate. The Lord is here, and he calls you. And immediately, the Lord is here? Okay, let's go. She got up, she left, she followed. So maybe we can use these next few days in, in Lent to form our conscience, to increase our bandwidth, so that we can perceive what he is saying to us. We can do that in our time of prayer, simply asking Him to show us. We can reinforce and man up our own doctrinal formation, our moral formation. Just reading some of the passages of the Catechism slowly and carefully, letting ourselves be enriched, updating, you could say, our inner software. But then, what about today's passage from the Gospel about the woman caught in adultery. In the Old Testament, it was Susanna and the two elders. She was unjustly accused. Well, now we have in the Gospel, we have the story of this lady, this woman caught in adultery. And we can picture the angry scribes and the Pharisees hurling this poor woman at the feet of the Lord. And there she she's lying there in a cloud of dust weeping. And they thought to themselves that he can't deny the law of Moses. I mean, the, Moses said that we have to stone somebody like that who commits adultery. Of course, no mention of the guy, you know, as though the guy were, were fine. But they thought, well, he can't deny Moses, so we've got him now. But they did not count on our Lord's soothing mercy. The Lord's mercy is as great as his wisdom, always, always calm and serene and accommodating, always open to the truth. But of course, he's not at all perturbed by this trap that they set for him. When he says that beautiful line, he who is without sin, 
should hurl the first stone. Like you'd think that that invitation might be a danger to this woman, but he knew them. I mean, he knew these guys. He was aware that they were aware that none of them was without sin. They all knew that. None of us, in fact, are without sin. If one were to pick up a stone and hurl it, I mean, that, that would be a deep, uh, example, a, a clear example of their lack of knowledge, obviously, and pride. That they're not ready to do. So they drop their stones, their weapons of hate, drop them all to the ground. It's as though he provoked in them some semblance of mercy as they drop those stones. Some people say that on the ground, as he, you know, as he crouched down on the ground, he started writing in the sand or whatever, and he said, well, supposedly he was writing their sins, and, and when they came, they, they acknowledged their sins that they'd seen written in the sand, and they ceased their desire for violence. Well, I don't know if what he wrote there, but what is clear is he, he won them over and made a new disciple out of this woman, but perhaps the phrase that is the most important in this account of the adulterous woman is the very last phrase, right? the last phrase where, where he asks her, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord, no one. He says, well, I don't condemn you either. And the last line, go and do not sin again. I do not condemn you. That's his mercy. But he does clearly say, do not sin again. The Lord was not relativizing what she had done, like something she had done. Because only he could judge. Because only he knew her heart. He knew that she had done something, and he was able to say, go, do not sin again. The elders here made some judgments about her as though they knew her. He said she was caught flagrantly in adultery, in the very act of committing adultery. I mean, how could they know that? Were they there? I mean, what were they doing there? And they, of course, expressed what we call rash judgment. We can never judge others like that. We can never assume that we know everything about somebody. We can never assume that we know what they're all about. Put a little tag on them, a little label on them. You know, oh, she's obsessive. You know, she's like that. We just tag them. And we picture this scene. We thank you, Lord, for your divine mercy. Help me to drink in that mercy with acts of contrition, with acts of penance. They can act like a soothing balm over my inner wounds. And he tells us too, go in peace. Do not sin again. But he doesn't want us to get discouraged by our weakness, by our sensuality, by our attachments, by our laziness, which we all have in some way. But he doesn't want us to get discouraged. I do not condemn you. He says to us, 
just says, do not sin again. So we have to see that recognition of the Lord in our life with new eyes. And uh, let's ask uh, the Lord never, never to judge, to help us never to judge. The men with those stones in their hands were using God's law to hurt others, not to liberate others, but to hurt them in some way. And we, we can do this when we gossip, when we scapegoat someone, when we blame someone, we convince ourselves that we're just following the divine law. We're just, well, what? We're just saying she did this wrong. She, we just, we're just pointing out the problem. That's all I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You know, everybody can see this. But the Lord enters, shows us that the primary purpose of the law is to make us humble, to draw us to a higher attainment. He doesn't denigrate the law, of course, at all. He just reaches out in mercy in order to bring sinners back to life. Maybe in these last days uh, of uh, Lent, last weeks, we can see how is our apostles of confession. Have I ever invited anybody to go to confession? Have I spoke about the beauties of confession? And to be told, nor do I condemn you. Now that's what... And you, I absolve you, in other words, is what, you know, is what we hear when we go to confession. And in some ways we're told, well, don't, don't sin anymore. Do not sin again. Let's ask this of our Blessed Mother to intercede for us, help form our conscience so that we can obey and listen to our conscience. It's guiding us, it's telling us where to go, to the right way. It's giving us the compass. Our Blessed Mother will intercede for us so that we are able to follow her son. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.